I won't try to go through the whole thing, but I just want to hit on a few of the major points there. God the Father is revealed through nature as its designer and creator. In Psalm 139, David says, verses 13 through 15, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. Uh, many other passages in the, uh, in the affirmation about God the Father there that are, that are worth uh, looking at. We're, uh, we're very careful that what we uh, state about God and, and our faith is all directed completely from the Scripture. God the Father is revealed throughout the Scripture, which directly testify of him. And God the Father is revealed through the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ came into the world at the direction of the Father, and uh, he, made the, uh, uh, he made the statement that, uh, if I can find my notes here. Uh, well, what I wanted to say, I don't seem to have it down here, had to do with the fact that Christ said that he was, that uh, God was, direct, was revealed through him. And we know that, that the relationship, as Kevin talked about last week, is a complicated one. It's hard for us to understand the, the Trinity. But Christ, even though he is God with God the Father, is, was uh, subservient to God the Father. And especially when he was here on earth, he made various statements that he had, uh, uh, when he said that, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was there not to do his own will, but, but God's will. He, he said that your will be done, not mine. Um, and in Hebrews ten seven says, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Uh, also, uh, he is presented as a father of both uh, Jesus, uh, or of Jesus, our, the believers, and Israel. In uh, as, as it's obvious that the passages, many of them reflect on him as God the Father and Jesus as His Son. He also is uh, the Father of all those that believe in Jesus. And. Uh, John 1, 12 through 13 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In, uh, uh, in the Old Testament, he's presented as the father of Israel, and not as specific people, but as the, as the father in a relationship with the nation of Israel. And, and in Deuteronomy 32, 6, it says, do, this, do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is not he your father who has brought you, who has made you and established you? Uh, this article is important, I think, because what we believe, everything we believe is built on who God is and how he's chosen to love mankind. He created us, revealed himself to us, and loves us in a way we cannot understand sacrificing his own son, Jesus Christ, so that we could be his children.
uh, we come today to this passage in Scripture. Uh, I don't know if many of you know who Charles Templeton was. Charles Templeton became a believer in 1935 or testified to that. And that same year, he became an evangelist. And then by the mid-1940s, he was very well known, and he partnered with the then upcoming Billy Graham to do crusades or outreaches in Great Britain and the UK. Uh, Templeton, by some accounts, would have eclipsed Billy Graham's uh, ministry, if you can imagine that. Uh, Charles Templeton was very gifted in speaking and evangelism, and he was an amazing, amazing preacher of God's Word. And yet, by the early 1950s, late in the 40s, by the early 1950s, he uh, disavowed his Christianity, basically. And two years before he died, he died in 2001. But Lee Strobel, for his book, The Case for Faith, interviewed Charles Templeman uh, because he was really a rising star in evangelicalism in the mid-century of the last century. But as Lee Strobel interviewed him in the course of research for The Case for Faith, uh, Templeton lost his faith when he was a young man. In fact, uh, his primary work was done in about the 1955 era. He, it was entitled Farewell to God, and the subtitle was My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. If you can imagine what a transition that is from being a world-class stadium-filled evangelist to one who rejects the Christian faith. In my mind, I cannot imagine that, but it happened. And Charles Templeman was that kind of man. So uh, Lee Strobel uh, re refreshes our mind, and he talks about that interview with Charles Templeton. He writes that in the discussion about Jesus Christ, Templeton's eyes welled up with tears. And Strobel says, Templeton re related to me that I really miss Jesus after years of writing books defending his agnosticism, he was still unable to shake off the allure of Jesus. He had learned to love Jesus with his heart, but not with his mind. What your mind rejects, your life will eventually reject also, however close it may be to your heart. Charles Templeton would be in the definition of a false teacher, even though he proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. And I was thinking and reflecting on that. And I was thinking, I don't know if anybody has ever kept track of all the evangelistic outreaches that Billy Graham has done and how many people look back and count it as the beginning point of their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saved at a Billy Graham encounter. But at the flip side of that, I wonder how many people denied Christ because of Charles Templeman. I wonder how many read his books, were exposed to his teaching, on agnosticism and atheism and rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very sobering thought, and that is the power of false teaching. Peter, in his first letter, uh, writes in chapter 3, verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. That word defense is the word we get apologetics from. Uh, we are to give a defense, and it's not, well, your pastor's to give a defense or your elders are give a defense. Yes, we are to do that. But as every believer has some responsibility because we don't go with you into the workplace or into your school 
or into the store with you typically. And so when you're asked hard questions, perhaps by coworkers or classmates or neighbors or perhaps in your own family, it is good to know what you believe and why you believe it. And that's why we do what we do. We want to equip you with the Word of God so that you can answer some of those questions that may come your way. And I'm sure if you've been a believer very long, you will have had those questions already about the faith. You perhaps have run into a Charles Templeman who has rejected the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. In your bulletin on the back of the sermon notes, I have run parallel passages here, Second Peter chapter 2, verses uh, 10 through 16, which we will look at today very briefly, and then also Jude, uh, verses 8 through 13. And you can see the correlation if you read down carefully, and in fact, if you use a highlighter, you can highlight the similarities. But uh, the point is, is that... Uh, As as Dave said, false teaching was rampant, not only in the first century, but throughout biblical history as well as church history. There have been false teachers that abound. Let me start with uh, prayer, and then we will look at this passage together this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you, and again, we have the great privilege of approaching your throne where the angels surround you, those perfect beings crying out, holy, holy, holy. And thank you this morning for the privilege it is to gather freely in this free nation where we can hold Bibles uh, that you've given to us in our own language and that we get to study your word, your scriptures. Heavenly Father, I thank you that in this vigorous epistle, the Apostle Peter has written and written very strongly and very directly And we praise you for the way in which you have led him to express himself under the Holy Spirit's guidance concerning false doctrine and the consequence of immorality and and a, a debased life. We thank you for the provision through Jesus Christ of the atonement that meets all of our needs. And we thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit who resides in each believer and gives us the power to walk in the light of scriptures. And Lord, we ask you as we study again this morning this word that it may perform its task in each and every heart, each and every life, that our minds and hearts would be open, that we would be attentive to what you have for us. Because we remember what you have said, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And this morning we pray as we listen to these scriptures being expounded upon, and as we look at your word, that we hear your message for our faith, and that you would increase our strength even this morning. We pray too, Lord, that you will open the doors of opportunity for us, that you will enable us to see our lives in the light of Scripture, and by your grace conform us to your will, that we would be light shining in a very dark culture, society, and world. And Lord, we pray today that your word would have an edifying and sanctifying influence upon us as we turn to them, and we pray, Lord, that each one would have an understanding of the things you teach us here today, for it's in the power of and the illuminating name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen and amen. Well, this morning I'm going to use a word uh, that we don't typically use in our everyday conversations, and perhaps you've not even really heard it before, and that is the noun uh, and the adjective apostate. Apostate. It describes a particular kind of person. 
The Greek word, if you did a word study of the Greek word in the New Testament, you would see that it lexically, basically a, a lexical definition from the Greek lexicon means in English to fall away from. That's its basic meaning, to fall away from. In the New Testament, uh, this word always refers to a person who knows the truth and deliberately turns the other way, like Charles Templeman. He knew the truth. He had intellectual assent to the truth, but he was not fully persuaded, and that showed up later in his life. An apostate knows the truth and intentionally embraces falsehood. And that's what Peter is dealing with in all of chapter 2 of his second letter. The dictionary, if we were to get out the Webster's, the dictionary defines an apostate as a person who has rejected the tenets of religion he once claimed to believe. Notice that the apostate once claimed to believe those things, but actually was not fully persuaded of those things. In biblical terms, an apostate is anyone who claims to be a Christian and yet denies the fundamental truths of the Christian faith. And we've already seen that at the beginning of chapter 2, where one of the primary descriptions of an apostate is they deny the master who even bought them. In other words, they deny the Lord Jesus Christ. If we were to go back and do a survey through the New Testament, we would see that there are many warnings about apostates, about false teaching, and the danger they pose to churches all around the world, to Christians everywhere. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 15, Jesus spoke about the danger and warned about wolves coming into the church in sheep's clothing. Remember, Christians are often referred to as sheep, you know, and uh, that, that metaphor, that image out of the Middle East, and yet Jesus warned us about the wolves who would come scatter the flock. The Apostle Paul picked up on that image when he wrote to the Ephesian church, uh, Ephesian elders, after his departure, he said, false teachers will come in like ravenous wolves devouring the flock of God in Acts chapter 20. The apostle John said, there are many deceivers who have gone out into the world and such people are the very spirit of Antichrist in his second letter, verse 7. In fact, there's so many warnings in the New Testament about false teachers, about apostates. We can only come to one of two conclusions Uh, The first conclusion would be that, boy, those early Christians, they sure must have been a naive bunch and very gullible, or the false teachers must have been very clever. Christians were either gullible or the false teachers are very clever. With no doubt, there's always a place for naive believers. They seem to be people who are easily deceived, and we see that even in our culture today as people gather in areas and and institutions that teach false doctrine. But I think more than that, the problem has always been the cunning devices of false teachers, of apostates, to mislead God's people. The message of the Holy Spirit through his word is very clear. Be on your guard. Keep your eyes open. Watch lest you be led astray. Be ready to contend for the faith. Remember what Peter said, make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And yet we come to this passage, chapter 2, really all of chapter 2, but especially the verses today, 10 through 13, or 10 through 16, and it seems like, boy, Peter is just laying it on. He's just shooting from the hip, and he doesn't care. Boy, it it rings, his words ring kind of, kind of, brass-like, you know, in our ears of the 21st century, because he doesn't seem very tolerant, does he? 
In the tolerance movement, this would be very intolerant. And yet Peter is willing to go toe-to-toe with these apostates. Peter was very disturbed. In fact, one commentator wrote, and I included that in your notes, is Peter's abhorrence of these errorists produced some of the most colorful and shocking language in the New Testament. Colorful and shocking for sure. It's been described, this passage has been described as powerful, colorful, direct, pungent, pointed, piercing, and penetrating. So if you look at your copy of Scripture in chapter 2 of First P- or Second Peter, excuse me, we're going to look at a number of further descriptions. Remember, in the first part of chapter 1, we talked about Peter introduced us to a description of false teachers. He talked about their destruction, and then he reminded us, and he also, this is our hope, there is deliverance from God for those who are righteous. And, of course, our righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. The only righteousness we can brag about is what Jesus Christ has given to us. It's called the imputation of Christ's righteousness. At the moment we trusted in Jesus Christ for our everlasting life, he imputed his righteousness to us so that God the Father sees us in Christ. But yet we still live in this world, and we are going through this process of sanctification, and we need to be aware we didn't get translated to heaven the moment we believed in Jesus And yet we live in this part called sanctification where God is delivering us through his Holy Spirit and his word, delivering us from the very power of sin. We've been rescued from the penalty. Now he's delivering us from the power of sin. And to do that, we need to know certain things. Remember, knowledge is an important word in the letter of 2 Peter. He keeps going back some 16 times. He mentions the word to know or knowledge or keep in mind. It's important to know what we believe and why we believe it. And so we're going to look at four different descriptions that Peter gives us in these few short verses. Uh, The first one is found in the second part of verse 10 through 13a. Basically, the apostates, another marker is that they are disrespectful. Look at the second part of verse 10. It describes their attitudes, their daring, and their self-willed. Daring means presumptuous. Self-willed means arrogant. That's their attitude. Remember earlier on in chapter 2, verse 1, they're described as false teachers, which means pseudo-teachers or fake teachers. And so he describes them here as having a daring and self-willed attitude. And notice in the second part of verse 10, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. They are reviling angelic majesties. Now, the question is, is what are those angelic majesties that he's talking about? Is it the angels that he mentioned earlier who were cast into, uh, <clears throat> into to hell and they are bound in hell right now, the fallen angels, or are they the angelic beings that serve God daily? Well, it's a little bit ambiguous here, but nevertheless, they have this daring and self-willed, this presumptuous, arrogant attitude about them that they're even willing to revile angelic beings, angelic majesties, which in turn reviles God himself because God created the angelic majesties. It goes on that they're accusatory, they're accusatory, uh, whereas angels in verse 11 who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. Of course, the example of that is found over in Jude, the passage that Dave read for us, where even the archangel, even the archangel would not contend with Satan. We don't understand, we don't know, we don't have any information about this dispute with the devil about the body of Moses. 
but he did not dare pronounce judgment against him. He said, the Lord rebuke you. He did not even revile back. And so these people, these false teachers, are accusatory. They take a gross presumption, and they revile angelic beings. And finally, then they use another metaphor, another picture of what false teachers are like. It tells us there in verse 12, but these like unreasoning animals, so he refers to them as unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct, to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. Animalistic, fleshly instinct, unreasoning. The idea here is they're insane. They're not thinking clearly about the revealed truth of what God has given to them. And any time you find false teachers, whether it's Uh, David Koresh down in Texas years and years ago or others, we could name a bunch of them, you will find that they ignore the truth of God's word and simply use it to lead others astray. I read an article about the early church under persecution. And when the army, army of Julian, who was an apostate, was on march in Persia, some of its soldiers got a hold of a Christian believer and they tormented this believer. They, they tortured him in a brutal sport. And after they wearied of torturing him while he was still breathing, they looked into his eyes and said to the helpless victim with infinite scorn in their voices, where is your carpenter God now? The prisoner, it's reported, looked up through the pain, the blood, and the agony to say is, where is my carpenter God? He's building a coffin for your emperor. And again, Rather than comprehending what was above them, whatever these angelic majesties were, they really understood only what was below them, the instinct, the fleshly desire of an animalistic world. So apostates are disrespectful, they're insolent, they're rebellious. In the second part of verse 13, they are dissolute or licentious. Look at the second part of verse 13. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime, They are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. They're without shame. Stains and blemishes. Over in chapter 3, verse 14, believers are called to be. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless. It's the exact opposite of what Christians are called to be. We are not to be stains and blemishes. And uh, they abuse the love feast. Look at that. They carouse with you. Uh, Jude talks about them bringing error upon the love feast. What was the love feast? That was in Second or First Corinthians chapter 11, where we have the central passage on the Lord's table. And in the first century, before the Lord's table, they would have what was called the love feast, a big church pot luck, although Christians don't believe in luck, so it was a pitch-in dinner. And they would get together, but some of the poor were being abused and people were getting drunk on the wine. And then they would uh, try to do the Lord's table. And and Paul is correcting that in Corinthians because they were abusing the Lord's table. Well, evidently here, the apostates were abusing this love feast. They were abusing the very basic uh, principle, the ordinance of the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. And so that's what they were doing. They were licentious. These false teachers were rebellious, licentious, and that takes us further down this downward slide into this destructive path they are on. Thirdly, apostates are depraved, they're immoral. Look at verse 14. 
having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. These are people, and primarily because of the grammar, uh, at this day and age anyway, when Peter was writing, the false teachers were typically men, and they were looking for adulteresses. They had eyes full of adultery, and they were looking for women who would do their bidding, basically. These were the false teachers. And really, this adultery, this eyes full of adultery is an idolatry. Any sexual sin is idolatry. It is trying to serve self at the expense of others to the neglect of what God has commanded us. They never cease from sin. There are acts of sin, one writer said, but then there are habits of sin. And here we see the apostates are in a habit of sin. That's why you and I need to be careful, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, to analyze our life, look at those things that God is bringing up to us, if they keep coming up, whatever that sin is in our life, that it doesn't become a habit, that we confess it, repent of it, and allow him to do his work in our lives, in the secret rooms of our hearts, that we cleanse those things out, that we make sure that the Holy Spirit has control over that area, that we soak ourselves in the Word of God and recognize what a great future we have. We may have acts of sin, but when it becomes a habit of sin, that is the apostate stand. They never cease from sin, and they entice unstable souls. Another description, they're depraved, they're immoral. Uh, They are rebellious, licentious, immoral, and it takes us further down their destructive path. The fourth one is they are desirous or they are greedy. And the rest of this paragraph is focused on this. Look at 14b. They have trained their heart in greed. They are accursed children. Another form of idolatry is greed, wanting more, wanting more. They were accursed children. They were forsaking the right way, and they were going the wrong way. Look again at verse 14 with me. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor who loved the wages of unrighteousness. If you're familiar with Balaam the prophet out of Numbers, chapters 22 through 24 and chapter 31, we find his end. Uh, But you know, Balaam is a prime Old Testament example of a man using religious talk and God speak for his own gain, for his own greed. He rebelled against God's authority. And here these false teachers rush after this picture of Balaam out of the Old Testament. Remember, God has already used three examples. He's used the angels who were cast, who fell and rejected God, and they were cast into this uh, hell to be held in bondage. Uh, He used Sodom and Gomorrah. He used Noah and the flood and the people of this unholy world. And now he uses Balaam. The error of Balaam is the desire to become personally wealthy by making a business out of serving God. And all you have to do is Turn on the internet or your television set and you'll find plenty of these guys in the era of Balaam who are personally becoming very wealthy uh, in a business of, uh, out of serving God or supposedly serving God. Uh, you may remember if not too long ago there was one uh, who asked his supporters to give them $65 million for a new executive jet, uh, and which he got, by the way. And which I just cannot hardly believe, and yet people are unstable in that. Balaam professed to be a prophet of God, but he was covetous and willing to prostitute his prophetic gift for money. And five times, Balak, uh, the king Balak paid Balaam uh, to curse Israel, 
And he was more than willing to do that, but he was forcibly restrained by God. And finally, many of the things that were true and beautiful for all of that, he was a hireling prophet. Uh, he couldn't curse the men of Israel, but eventually exceeded, exceeded in luring them into sin with the daughters of Moab. And what did God do? God used a donkey. Isn't that interesting? There was nobody else speaking in the Balaam's life. And then remember the story, an angel there with a sword was going to destroy Balaam. The donkey could see it. Balaam was bent on destroying himself, and yet the donkey started talking in a human voice. And uh, so that means that God can even use a donkey to restrain evil and get his will done. If we were to go together today, uh, it would be a long trip, but if we could pile in the big bus and drive down I-90, when we got the lookout pass, we'd hit the state line of Montana. And that's mile marker zero on I-90. And if we went to the Wyoming state line, uh, to the next mile marker, uh, the end of the mile marker in Montana on I-90, it would be mile marker 551.68, exactly 551.68 miles from Lookout Pass to the Wyoming border. Then if we went up and got on I-94, where it intersects uh, I-90, just uh, east of Billings there, uh, that's where mile marker zero is. And then we went to the North Dakota state line. That would be another length of 249 miles. So any way you calculate it, the mile markers, it's a long way across the state of Montana. Having lived in the Midwest and made that trip many times, we always said that when we hit the eastern border of Montana, we were halfway to western Montana from Wisconsin, which is about true. Uh, so it's a long way across there on these mile markers. And... Uh, Peter gives us these identities of these apostates. They are mile markers, if you will, as we watch people's ministry. Three markers of apostasy. There's physical immorality. They defile the flesh. Those who uh, pollute their own bodies are like Sodom and Gomorrah. Pollute literally means defile, deprave, used elsewhere only in Titus and Hebrews. Titus uh, 1.15 says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Hebrews 12, 15, See that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble, and by it you may be defiled. So the first mile marker is physical immorality. The second one is intellectual insubordination. They reject authority, which we've seen today. You may be familiar with Anne Rice. She is a novelist. And uh, she wrote books, you know, the vampire books, Interview with the Vampire, Twilight. And uh, she grew up as a Roman Catholic, but later professed her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, everybody celebrated her conversion to Christianity. And yet, uh, a number of years ago, she wrote that, uh, for, those of who, for those who care, and I understand if you don't, today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being a Christian or to being part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For 10 years I've tried, I failed, I'm an outsider, my conscience will allow nothing else. Intellectual insubordination. For to really to reject the church, which is the bride of Christ. Can you imagine going to a wedding and say, I hate the bride? but I love the groom. What do you think the groom thinks about that? 
Uh, so Anne Rice rejected Christianity. So intellectual insubordination is the second marker. The third marker is spiritual irreverence. They reviled these angelic majesties. Rather than what was comp- comprehending God, who God is and what his angels are like, they really understood only the animals below them. So we're warned again with this description and then also the destruction of these false teachers as well as encouraged by the deliverance of the righteous. Some implications from this passage. First of all, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> note the progression. Like Charles Templeton, unbelief, rebellion, and immorality. First of all, God will assuredly carry out his judgment and his victory no matter the time span. When we get to chapter 3, we will see that. That should be a great assurance for each one of us, for he is faithful in his character and will complete everything he sets out to accomplish, including your everlasting eternal salvation. It should cause us to make sure we are of the faith and not just in a church. Notice the difference? We need to make sure. We should be very careful not to align our attitudes or our actions with those who reject biblical faith. The realization that God's power and faithfulness should give us more boldness and we contend earnestly for the faith. To ask ourselves the question, what do I believe? Why do I believe it? Not what does Pastor Gary believe or the elders believe, but what do I believe and why? And to be able to defend that. That's what Paul talks about in giving a defense for the hope that lies within us. One writer has written that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not citizens of this world trying to make our way to heaven. We are citizens of heaven trying to make our way through this world. That's an important, important distinction. We are not to live as to earn God's love, inherit heaven, or purchase salvation. That's what the false teachers teach. These are gifts already given to us by Jesus Christ on the cross. We are to live as God's redeemed, as heirs of heaven, and as citizens of another, another land, the kingdom of God. We live as those on a journey home. We know the lights will be on, the door open, and our Father will be waiting for us at the end of this journey that we're on right now. In all of our adversity, our worship is joyful, our life is hopeful, our future is secure. Do not forget that. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you again for the Apostle Peter. Thank you.